welcome to the Gathering Church's audio sermon. Thanks for listening. I'm just thank you for having us here this morning. It's just good to be a part of this congregation and, and to be a part of the church here. Um, if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's kind of where I'd like to start with. At this point in Scripture, Jesus has actually... Uh, risen from the dead and is now commissioning his disciples. He's beginning to challenge his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. And it's during this time as he's he's speaking with these disciples that he gives them another time of commissioning them to what the task is that they're to do as believers. So this is kind of a message specifically to his disciples, but also as we are disciples as well, it's a message specifically to us. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is, a, this is the fifth time, actually, Jesus is giving this. Since his resurrection, he's giving like what they call this famous thing called the Great Commission. And it's, the other four times are found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of those ones have a very similar story or a very similar statement by Jesus, but this is a, like a culmination to that time. It's an interesting time period. But one of the things I found interesting about that Great Commission is they do polls in America. So this is in the U.S., and Barna polled did this poll on, have you ever heard of the Great Commission? You know what was interesting was 51% of Christians, these are churchgoers, these aren't people that have never been in church, but 51% of Christians had no idea what the Great Commission was. 25% said yes, but I can't really call what it says. 6% said not sure, and 17% said yes, and it means this. That, that means that basically the majority of the church doesn't know one of the most significant passages in, in ways that God actually communicated to man what he wanted the church to be about. Like, what he wanted the church to be doing. And I'm not surprised by that, because many churches don't preach uh, about some things. But, but it is interesting to think, why would that be that we wouldn't understand that? Simply wonder why, if, if this was so preeminent with Jesus and the, what he actually said, all those years I was with you, I'm sending you to do this. So this message, message being given here is to those disciples who followed Jesus for three years continuously. It's clearly also for us as disciples of Jesus today. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is one of the other five great commissions. Jesus uses this Greek phrase, pantata ethne, when he's talking about nations. So when he's giving this call to go to the nations, he uses this Greek phrase, pantata ethne. What that means is we always interpret and translate words like, like nations, right? Jesus is sending us to the nations. But what Jesus actually was commissioning to us to was to language groups to people groups, to people that were cut off from the gospel. It was this idea of saying the gospel can only go so far and then it stops. There's a great illustration of that, and, and this comes from this idea as if you have a, a, a bunch of lakes, right, and you're able to take one rock and throw a rock into a lake, Once, when you throw a rock into the lake, what happens? You get ripples, right? How far do those ripples go? To the end of the lake, right? But if there's another lake over there, will those ripples get to that lake? So what do you need? Another rock. It's this picture, right? It's this picture of saying that if the gospel goes to one people group here, but there's another group over here that doesn't speak that language, how will the gospel go? Someone else needs to go and share. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what he's actually speaking to us here in this passage, going to these places. Now, the translators in these passages, as we walk through it, we realize, or we look at the world today, and translators say that there's over 10,000 languages in the world today, 10,000 languages. Out of that, there are over 2,500 with no Bible, no witness, no absolute way for these guys to know about Jesus Christ. So there's three areas I want to talk about this morning as we go through this. What is God's heart for the nations? We'll see that from Acts 1.8. 
What does God use to fulfill his mandate in Acts chapter 2? And then what is the means to accomplish that mandate in Acts 13? Now, it's only a mere few weeks after Jesus gives us great commission and everything is about to change. And what's going to happen is the book of Acts is a history of God's people and the church and the impact it has on the world around it because they're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. When we were in Siberia, we were a part of, as Julian was sharing, part of seeing God's work among a people group called the Buryats. Now, the Buryats, up to that point, at this point in history, in the 1990s, they had never had anybody come and learn their language, learn their culture, and actually present the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way they could understand it. And so for us, it was the beginning of the first church among the Buryats, as Julianne just shared. That's the first church among the Buryat people ever to exist, as far as we know, in history. But before that, there was a first church for all of mankind. And that actually happens here in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Acts 1.8 is a pivotal verse of the book of Acts for the church. And it's a central focus of Jesus Christ for us as his church. So what happens when we as believers hear the Great Commission and obey Jesus? It's pretty exciting to see what happens. The disciples are told to wait in Jerusalem. So they go and they wait, and they, they're waiting for God's going to give them the Holy Spirit, but they don't even totally know what that is. And they're spending time, and they're praying together. And it says, also, I'll read this passage in Acts chapter 2, verses 4. All of them, the disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from heaven, or devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So these disciples are gathering together and praying, and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they speak in other languages. Uh, yeah, I need some water, I think, yeah. Sorry. And at the sound, the multitude gathered together, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of them in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, and Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors of Rome? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed. Now, what's happening here is, I'm going to stop there. You're wondering probably, why did I mention all those names? all those people groups. Well, we've never heard of some of them before, right? And some of them don't even exist anymore. But just because we've never heard of them, don't mean they, that doesn't mean they don't matter to God. So the Holy Spirit puts them in this passage here for us. The tongues here that are being spoken are a known language. So these disciples are gathering together and they're preaching and the people are all listening in the crowd and they're coming from different nationalities and different language groups. And they're hearing it for the first time and this message is coming out to them and they hear it in their own language. It's communicated in the truth in their own language. And it's an amazing picture of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the first gospel proclamation. And Peter, with unbelievable clarity and urgency, links what everybody in this room is noticing at that time. Namely this, the clear, powerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in each of their own languages. This is the first gospel proclamation we see in Scripture. It's actually the first message we see from any of the disciples. It will be from this group that are listening to this sermon that the church will form that will become the very first church in Jerusalem. It's a picture, what we see here is a picture of God's disciples gathering together and Jesus communicating to the Pontata ethne of that region. Now, the gospel is God communicating to man. The gospel is a power of God to salvation. God has always communicated to man in a language and culture that we understand. You see, God actually himself became flesh, and he communicated to us in a way that we could hear and understand it. He came to speak to us a way that we could understand it. As Julian was sharing, when I was... 
we were working with deaf people, and I actually had a chance to go to a school that was up there in, um, in this area, and it was a deaf school with about 1,000 kids in it, just a massive school there, and I was asked to go speak there. So I had never been there to speak. There was a Buddhist school, and as I walked into this school, the teachers were all in the back of the room, and it was kind of like an auditorium like this, but there was probably, a, like in the room itself, there were probably 800 kids were sitting in there, and it was chaos. It was like pandemonium. They're all like going back and forth. It's noisy, and deaf can be pretty noisy, and they're going back and forth, and they're trying to talk to each other, and they're, they're doing all this other stuff, and the teachers are in the back, and they're kind of making fun of me for being there. And they're like, you know, you, you know, they don't hear, they're not bright, they're not, they can't think, they can't, and I'm like, I'm listening to them tell me all these things. And then one of the teachers got to announce me speaking, and they grabbed the megaphone, and they grabbed a microphone, and she started to scream into this megaphone and microphone. If you know anything about deaf people, you know that they read lips. So here she's covering her mouth, she's screaming into this thing, and I'm thinking to myself, if they weren't deaf when they came into the school, if you heard that lady screaming like that all the time, you'd be deaf yourself. And so as, as she's communicating at that time, I walk up to the front and I realize, like, they're not interested in me. They don't even care about me. And so I kind of stand in there thinking, I didn't know how to start. And the teachers in the back kind of like laughing at me, sort of like for being there. And I'm standing up there thinking, what do I do? And these three girls are right in the front row. And I just start to speak to them in sign. And, you know, they're talking to each other. And then one girl looks at me, gives me eye contact and starts seeing what I'm doing. And she begins to weep. And... All the kids in the room, the whole place suddenly goes dead silent, and they're all watching me. And I go back up to them to speak. You know what was so significant about me being there? Not that I was the first American they'd ever seen. Not that I was the first guy ever to go in there. He's the first hearing person that could speak their language. I was the first hearing person that could communicate to them in a way that they could understand. And the place went completely quiet. The teachers got actually mad, and they literally walked out. I could have said anything. And so I, I walked up there, and I began to just talk to them. You see, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. That's what Jesus did for us, is he came and allowed us to understand who God is and, who, and how we can know God in a better way. The response that we see taking place from this first sermon in Acts chapter 2 is from, in verse 21, it says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the results of that proclamation, 3,000 people came to faith that day. The believers began to meet together then. At that point, they, meet, they met together. When we were working in our church in Siberia, we sort of had that same moment. We saw the Bereans coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We had talked through the meta-narrative. We've gone through scripture together with them. And suddenly we get to a point and we're communicating truth. And at that one point, at that one point, as we're listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they became believers, we went to Acts, the book of Acts, begin to study the book of Acts. And as they were reading through the book of Acts, they said to us, so what do we do now? And the very first thing we did was Acts 1.8. And then we went to Acts chapter two and we talked about what the early believers did and so they asked us, they said, so when do we start our church? Like, when do we start doing this thing? The, the beauty of this was, is they had no picture. They had no image of what a church was. They had no idea of what the church was to do. All they knew was the church was to gather together to be a family. And when they became believers in Jesus Christ among the Bereat people, they were completely cut off from the family. They had a thing that they used to say was the bread line or the, uh, the, the potato line, was you would, you would survive in Buryatia by potatoes, because there was not a lot of food in markets, things were closed up, and if your family cut you off from the potato line, you'd starve. And so when people became believers in Jesus Christ among the Bereats, they were cut off from the potato line. They were rejecting their family, they were rejecting their culture, their society, and they were this one unique family. And we began as a body of Christ saying, what is it we have to do? And just like the early disciples did, they shared what they all had with one another, because that was the only way for them to survive. 
these disciples, as, they, as, these, as these, we see this right, right here in Acts chapter 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, and awe came upon every, upon every soul, and the Lord added to their number those that were being saved. God's word for the church was what made this church unique. It joined them together and helped them be united in Christ. These guys devoted, them, devoted themselves to the word of God regularly. Now, one thing I will say this, though. What about those that can't? I mentioned that 2,500 people groups still exist today, that there's no way, if one of them wanted to know who Jesus Christ is, they couldn't because nobody speaks their language to communicate that truth and no one understands their culture to make it relevant to them. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have access to the gospel through online Bibles, through the phone, through paper. We can listen to it, but there are places with no hope, with no Bible at all. Now, what happens in this church is pretty exciting. It's a founding church that takes place with a vision like this Acts 1-8 church. This early church takes a vision to say, what do we do as a church in Jerusalem? It was a witnessing church. It was an evangelizing church. They were reaching out to the community around them, and they were growing daily. They were engaged in continuous, spontaneous evangelism. Everybody they met was a person that was an opportunity that was cut off from the gospel that needed to hear Christ about Christ. The church was beginning to grow. It was taking place and taking root. And there was an urgency there. There was an incredible urgency that took place. The heart to see the nations reached was vital to this church. When we were living in a country in Southeast Asia or in Central Asia, we were doing a medical work there. It was kind of a, a challenging place to be um, because of sickness. There was a lot of disease that was going, kind of like our, our situation we had here recently with a, with a virus that kind of went around. But it was a much more deadly one that hit this area. And people were dying, especially children were dying at a pretty massive amount. And so the cities, they had an antidote for it, they had a cure for it, um, but up in the villages, they didn't. And so we were asked to go take some medicine to some of these villages. We had a, doc, we had a group of doctors with us. And so we were going to go bring medicine up to these mountain areas. And we were at 8,000 feet, and we were going to 14,000 feet. Not if you've ever done any kind of climbing, but 8,000 to 14,000 feet was pretty hard to get to. So we were climbing up this mountain. I was carrying my backpack and we'd go up like 100 feet, you know, just stop and breathe and go up another 100, 100 meters and stop and breathe. 100, and we just, it took us forever. And as we were going up this mountain, these packs were heavy. These guys were running down the mountain really fast. And they came down the mountain. And as they got closer, it was kind of humbling because they were like in their 80s. And they were running down the mountain and they grabbed these packs off our back and bolted up the mountain as fast as they could. And we continued to go slow up the mountain as we got to the top. When we got up there, these guys who had come down the mountain, they were barefoot completely barefoot. And it was amazing to watch these guys as they came down. Their feet were all bloody and all cut up. And yet they were smiling because when we got there, we gave the medicine out and the kids were cured and they were safe. But these guys were smiling with bloody feet. And I have this picture that you read, Phil, early on today. It was this picture, this passage, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news of peace. You know what? We're willing to do anything if it's for our children. We're willing to do anything if it's for our grandchildren, right? This message of hope, of eternal life, is a message that we have, and we're actually called to take it to the nations. So what happens is the church begins to evangelize, and we see this church in Jerusalem continue to expand. Go with me now to chapter 13. In Acts 13, a major event is about to take place. The church that's being talked about here is no longer in Jerusalem. Now there's a church in another town quite a ways out called Antioch. And there's a little spark that was united or ignited in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
is now growing and pushing forward in Acts chapter 2, is taking off and spreading. Yet it's still not completed the whole mission of reaching the nations. And so in Acts chapter 13, we, we, we begin to see this picture take place of something that's happening in the church, where we see something happen. It says here in, in 13.1, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So that after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, this passage can just seem like, oh, a couple guys are gathering together and doing some things, but there's something really significant to this passage. It's now 15 plus years since this church was planted in, in, in Jerusalem, and now the church is spreading out to places all around, and now they're in Antioch. And this group of disciples are gathering together in Antioch, and they're praying. It's now a healthy church. It's a mature church. It's a growing church. It's diverse, ethnically diverse. And Saul and Barnabas are the leaders of the church in Antioch, and they're speaking with the Lord. And, and judging by what happens in this passage, it could be assumed something happens like this. The church elders are gathering together and saying, now what? We've, we've been reaching our community, and now what do we do? Where do we go next? Should we go to the ends of the earth? Should we continue pushing forward? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? This, this same thing ha is happening right now among the Berea church in Siberia. They're now saying the same thing. What are we supposed to do now? We're a church. We're a growing church. We're expanding church. Where do we go next? Where should we be sending our workers to? This passage is so significant and so important to understand. It's the early church engaging in the Great Commission, wondering what do they do now as a church? What do we do now as elders? What do we do now as elders? What's our responsibility to the world? We're a solid church, we're a healthy church, what next? Should it be now? Who should we send? Should we send Saul? Should we send Lucius, Simeon, or Barnabas? Interestingly enough, they actually pick Saul and Barnabas, two very famous guys we see taking place. These men are men that begin to impact the entire world, but at this point, it's not happened. Just the beginning aspect of that. God, the Holy Spirit, is a missionary God, and he is a spiritful, a spiritual church is therefore a missionary church, a church that continues to send and continues to look at the world. These four verses that we see in Acts literally change what we understand about history today. It's almost impossible to overstate the importance of these four verses because before this takes place, there's no organized missionary activity at all taking place where the church is the sender beyond what we see happening in the Mediterranean. Paul had made no missionary trips, no, Asia, no, no, no journeys to Asia Minor. None of that had taken place up to this point. Paul had written none of the letters we see in the New Testament. This is the very beginning. It's such a significant moment. This moment will change history, even for this world, because in two centuries, Christianity will become the dominant religion in all of, all of the Roman Empire, all, of, all through this region. It's that significant of a moment. It's a moment where a church looks at itself and says, what is our responsibility to the Great Commission, and what are we to do? What is our responsibility to the church, and where are we to send? It's a church that begins to understand its role. So that's how this first church started. That's how these first churches began to look at the world today. But since Acts chapter 2, we see this happening, and also Acts 13, how is our church doing today? Like, how is the church doing as a whole? Well, literally, there are thousands of people groups today that are reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ because churches took seriously those commands of Jesus. We see places around the world where Christ has been proclaimed and missionary efforts have gone on for years. 
translations of the Bible have happened and churches, et cetera, have, have, have taken place. Even us, even the English language, people actually, it's almost, I think it's 500 years coming up on the translation of the Bible into the English language coming up really soon. The idea that people actually gave their lives so we had the Bible in our own language is amazing. And yet there's still today places, and they died, many of them died doing that translation. And yet there are still today places where there's needs, where the gospel has not been translated. And we as a church are called to do that. It's massive difficulties. These languages are hard to get to. That's the reason why they're still unreached. Politically, they're hard. Geographically, they're hard. Like even against culturally, they're hard. And then there's massive religious issues that prevent the gospel from going there. But yet we're still called to go and still called to be there. It's an it's going to take something, though. It takes an extraordinary effort, doesn't it, as, a, as someone to go. Because where we go, we have to learn two languages. We have to learn the national language, and we have to learn the minority language. You have to translate the Bible in almost all these groups. It's really hard to do that. Hard to be there, hard to stay there. And yet we know this from Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We don't have to worry about responsibility on us. God promises us he'll do his work. We actually have the privilege of partnering with him. Julianne shared that lots of times. There was times when we felt like a drop in the bucket in Siberia, like this is impossible, impossible task to do. There's no way we'll be able to stay here long enough to be there. And then God allowed us to watch him do his work in spite of us, in spite of us. And that's the beauty of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not up to us. It's his work. It's his task. He allows us to partner with him in this. So from Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth, God has always been sending and seeking men and women with the courage enough to go and churches courageous enough to send as well, being willing to be a part of that. God desires to see the Pontata ethnic of the world reached. There's a quote I want to read to you from uh, James Stewart. He was a missionary in the 1800s. He writes this, the concern for world evangelism is not something tacked onto a man's personal Christianity, which he may take or leave as he chooses. It is rooted in the character of the God who has come to us in Christ Jesus. Thus, it can never be the province of a few enthusiasts, a sideline or specialty of those who are happy to have a bent that way. It's a distinctive mark of being a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. Therefore, missions flows directly from the nature and purposes of a missionary God, a God that sends. It's not that the church has a mission. I like this quote. It's a church. It's God's mission has a church. The end of every Christian, every local church is a spread of God's glory among the nations. When we were in... Siberia, we saw God do some pretty cool things. At the end, years later, um, one of our believers, our first believer among the Buryats, married an American guy and became a pastor's wife in, in um, Shadron, Nebraska. So we went to speak up there one time. And as I was going out there to speak in Shadron, we went out there one night and we got in the next morning, had breakfast there. And I sat at this table with this, I sat down there and this girl walked in and she sat next to me. And she leaned over to me as, she, as I was eating breakfast. She said, I'm the fruit of your ministry. And I didn't know if that was like a Shadron greeting. You know, I've never been to Nebraska before. So I'm like, you know, and I didn't say anything. And it's like turned my head and started eating my cereal the other way. And she leans in again and says, I'm the fruit of your ministry. I'm the fruit of your ministry. And I said, I, I heard you say it before. I don't know what that means. And uh, she said, let me tell you. She goes, I came here as a non-believer. And Maya, the Bereat, married to the pastors, shared Christ with me. And I became a believer in Jesus Christ. And she said, I'd never heard this before. She goes, she said, you're not even from America. How did you hear this? She goes, well, years ago, a missionary came and shared with me this story about Jesus Christ. 
And he passed on this light idea of Jesus Christ to me, and so I'm passing that on to you. And she goes, someday I'm gonna have, you're going to be teaching women, she said. And she goes, I don't speak ever in front of people. She goes, now I teach a group of 25 women. And she said, she goes, I kept telling Maya, I don't know how to teach. And she said, I didn't either. But someone came and told me how to teach. So I'm going to tell you how to teach. You know, if you'd have told me in the early 1990s that the gospel of Jesus Christ would spread among the Buryats, I don't think I would have believed you then because we felt like a drop in the bucket, like I said. But if you'd have told me that it would spread all the way over to, to Shadron, Nebraska, the middle, the middle of the Midwest of America, I absolutely wouldn't have believed you. But that's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It goes far beyond who we are. It goes far beyond our voice. It's God's message to the nations. It's not dependent on us. It's that God allows us to partner with him in this task. We have the privilege of being and joining with what God is doing in the world. Father, we just thank you for this day. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the privilege we have to know you and the power of your resurrection. And thank you that you give us hope and life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's sermon. For more information about our church, visit tgcw.org.